0: This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast?
1: An audit of the city's use of consultants shows immense cost overruns, budget errors, capital costs in the millions that were categorized in the wrong uh, portfolios and in the wrong categories in the bookkeeping exercise. What's going on, and uh, why is it going on? I mean, we were just told a couple of days ago as the city council and the city staff were putting the final touches on the budget that they had done everything possible to try to make every dollar count and that they're trying to be as frugal as possible. I guess not everybody in the staff is buying into that. Chad Collins is the city council for Ward 5. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Chad, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing well, Bill. Yourself?
1: Uh, fine. Uh, listen, you guys ordered this uh, this auditor's report, uh, city council that is, so you knew mm-hmm. it was coming, but did you know you were going to get this kind of information?
0: No, not at all. And, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, we just went through a very grueling budget process where we ended up with one of the or we ended up with the lowest uh, tax increase in the province uh, this year in 2017. So lots of difficult decisions uh, had to be made. Uh, of course, we we reduced our workforce. Uh, we, you know, tweaked some services that, uh, as it relates to what the city provides across the board in all departments. And uh, and to find this on our laps, uh, you know, just at the tail end of the of that budget process is concerning. And and so there's lots of questions. And and the the report's vary in depth. It looks at consultants on the operating and the capital side of our budgets. And uh, I know that just in some brief preliminary consultation that I've had with other committee members, um, there's some concerns in terms of whether or not we have the proper controls uh, internally. When, when council provides resources to staff, specifically related to consultants, you know, are they following the rules and are the, the rules that we have in place the appropriate ones and do we need more?
1: It's got to be frustrating for you guys, though, I mean, meaning city council, having, you know, looked under every rock to trying to find every buck mm-hmm. you can for some of these programs. And 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 I'm not trying to point fingers here, but apparently not everybody on staff is buying into this. That they seem to be a little free and easy with some of the money that was available. And and one of the instances of that is something I know you identified in the meeting, which is something called gapping. Let's talk about that.
0: Yeah, gapping is um, gapping is the the process related to uh, the city's operating budget, wherein a department sees in year savings on their labor costs, and so somebody might go off on maternity leave. We may see uh, a retirement uh, early in the year. And it takes time to fill those positions, and so you you start to save uh, over a period of months uh, on um, on your labor costs, and and those are substantial for the city. Traditionally, with an organization our size, you know, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars yeah. just in gapping, and we rely on those gapping costs um, through our budget process. We we look at the trends, and I believe at this point in time, we we're probably a half a uh, sorry, a half a percent on the tax roll as it relates to savings annually for for gapping and we incorporate that right into the budget process what the report identifies is that departments are starting to use those dollars instead of corporately giving them up at the end of the year uh, to assist with whatever financial challenges we have it seems like there are some in the organization that are taking that opportunity to use those savings for um, expenditures within their organization and in some instances for consulting and so the the, the auditor has identified that as one of um, many problems associated with the whole consulting issue.
1: Yeah, but that's not free money. I, I, some people seem to think no. that's free. oh, hey, look at this is bonus stuff. We can go spend this. N- mm-hmm. it, no, you can't.
0: Exactly. You guys, and, you,
1: you as, a, as, as a council have already budgeted for this stuff, and they they seem to think it's theirs to do with what what they wish.
0: That's right, and I think Mr. Zagerik, our our um, chief financial officer, has many times um, you know raised the the whole issue of corporately assigning those costs to departments and making them responsible at the end of the year. And so right now, unfortunately, it, you know, the burden falls on Mr. Zagarek's shoulders and his finance staff to try at the end of the year to reconcile those numbers. And it makes, I think, their job a lot diff- more difficult uh, when people are off spending those resources. And, and to be clear, Bill, I think you just referenced it, they're not budgeted. I mean, they're budgeted as savings. They're not budgeted as expenditures. And so I I believe that, you know, you'll see probably after today's meeting, a directive for uh, staff to go back and corporately assign those gapping savings uh, to ensure that at the end of the year, they're just that, they're savings and they're not cost overruns in, in one or more departments.
1: The overall question that I think a lot of people are asking is is when they look at these figures, why is the city spending so much money on consultants? And it starts to raise a bunch of sub-questions here, Chad. Is it, mm-hmm. is it because some of the departments are understaffed? Is it, is it because they don't have the level of expertise they should have to to do the things that you're asking them to do? What's, what's going on here?
0: I think the auditor points to the latter in terms of the expertise. That's traditionally when most organizations, you know, decide to... Uh, to, to hire consultants you, you, you know there's essentially the, the thought that we may not have someone on staff who has that expertise and so that you know the wastewater treatment plant as a for instance I mean we have staff that operate it but when it comes to upgrading the facilities from a capital perspective, you really have no choice but to go out to you know four or five very large companies who work with all municipalities across the, the country. Uh, as it relates to making um modern day improvements with outdated or in some cases um, you know facilities that are tired, and, and so you're you're forced to go out to those companies um and the report clearly identifies that um but there there seems to be from the the auditor a question as to whether or not staff have been too liberal with that concept, whether or not you know there there is the opportunity to to come in and look internally as to whether or not there are staff and so you know, wastewater treatment plant, certainly a very complex uh, situation when it comes to construction and engineering and all those other things. But when it comes to more simpler tasks related to, and I'm just, you know, throwing this out there, financial tasks or employment issues, I mean, those may, may be some of the skill sets that our staff have internally to work on that. And, and that's one of many um, audit recommendations that the auditor provides to committee and council, and that is to to look at whether or not there are opportunities within our workforce to cut back on the use of consultants. He also looks at how those consultants are hired in terms of um, you know, whether they're on a roster or not. He looks at whether there's value for money. In some cases, we're, we're purchasing services from consultants where there may not be a need in the first place to go out there. It talks about large con- contingency funds, and so it looks like some of these budgets are, are, are very padded, if, if we can use that um, that word in this instance. Um, large contingencies that end up getting used up by the consultant and then there's the whole issue of just cost overruns and the use of consultants when they weren't budgeted in the first place so we we have staff within the organization it seems on the surface from what the auditors provided who are out um, hiring consultants with resources that were not approved through the, the capital or the operating budget. And we're not talking about small sums of money. We're talking about yeah, I know. In, in this instance, it was a million, I think and a half on the operating side and almost 38, $39 million on, on the capital side of the equation. So $40 million in consultants, there'll be a lot of questions this morning. I'm sure from committee members in terms of how we fare versus other municipalities the, uh, of our size, there'll be questions as it relates to, you know, who's making the decision to go out and spend resources that weren't budgeted. And then there's the whole issue of cost control. Many of the projects that were budgeted are, are over budget. And uh, and that was clearly identified as an issue uh, uh, by the consultant. What it doesn't show us, Bill, is whether or not there are savings. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, if we were to implement all of the recommendations from the auditor, you would think there'd be better financial controls, and with better financial controls will come savings. But there's no reference in there in terms of a dollar amount. And I think committee members, after the budget process we were just through, and the ones that are on the horizon, which will be just as difficult, through 218, 219, and 220, committee members will be looking for an opportunity to save some money here and, and look towards uh, next year's budget process with this being a priority.
1: But on the process side of things, though, Chad, I mean, you know, he identifies in the report here uh, 67% cost overrun. I mean, there is a budget for, for consultants. I, we get that, and mm-hmm. so you make that a lot, happen. but 67% over budget this year, 101% budget over budget last year. Now, if, if any other department runs out of money and says, look at we still need to do this, they – Pretty much have to go back to council and get permission, don't they? That's right, and and
0: and that'll. Be and one I, I don't get
1: I don't get the impression yep. that happened here.
0: And that's one of the questions: uh, whether or not they were through the budget process and a specific dollar amount was granted to the department or to the division, and whether or not they've they've exceeded those approved levels, or whether these uh, these um, files or um, contracts with the consultants were were not approved. And and they're they're using essentially monies that were provided for other services within their division or other priorities. So there, there's lots of questions. As you say, there's a lot of numbers in this report. Uh and, and a number of recommendations of which I think the, the committee will certainly ask our staff to to report back on in terms of you know how how will we make some progress in 2017 and beyond. And with the 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 budget on the verge of being approved uh, you know, sometime over the next week or so. The, there'll be some questions in terms of what's in the 217 budget that we need to relook at and and are there savings in year that we can make related to some of the recommendations that the auditors provided
1: and again on process and I know that you'll you'll get some details I hope anyway from from staff when you talk about this in just a few minutes when you go into your meeting but mm-hmm. but we're told that that some of the rationale for the reasons or some of these numbers is because well yeah they were put it in there as capital expenses and they're really consultants or vice versa. Uh, that if you or I make a mistake like that, you're not an accountant, neither am I. But it's one of those oops moments. These guys are paid to do this properly, so there's there's something going on here if they don't know exactly how to actually put the reports together.
0: Well, and it's back to transparency, and I think you'll see that in, that word throughout the recommendations and and through some of the findings, Bill. The, the The auditor clearly says that you know, even if you're categorizing the expenditures in the wrong area, it, it really speaks to the whole issue of transparency. And if we were to try to drill down in terms of what the true number is, hard to tell if you're not um, if you're not uh, properly coding, I think is the word that he referenced, consultant uh, costs. And so when council every year, when we go through the budget, we we ask the question, what what's our use of consultants this year? What's our contractual line look like? And if we're not being given the the correct numbers, it's very difficult to make informed budget
1: decisions. I uh, remember an incident when I was first on council. That would be 1997, I guess it was, and uh, talking with a veteran, not you, by the way, uh, who's during the budget process. And I said, well, where's the money going to come from? Oh, we'll pull it out of Public Works or something. Don't worry, nobody will ever look at that stuff. Now, we're not there anymore, all right? That was then, and that individual's no longer in politics, as a matter of fact. But, but it spoke to the mindset of that, how some people, you know, did business back in those days. Uh, clearly, uh, that's, that's not uh, acceptable anymore. But it kind of sounds as if, you know, they, well, let's just stick this in here. I, I'm not suggesting anything untoward is going on right now, but it, it's, they're not doing a very efficient job.
0: Well, I th- you're right. Times have changed, and it's a very structured process right now. And, and you know, we're, we've, we're constantly being bombarded with statistical information and trends. And in uh, comparisons as it relates to other municipalities, and so we we receive a lot of information, and we can, certainly can't fault our staff for that. But if the information that we receive isn't correct, then, then we run into problems. And and I think, and I've you know said this even through our last budget process over the last couple of months, that our finance staff need to be they need to be provided more discretion and, and more authority over some of the operating departments. They almost need to act as the budget police. And I know that's probably not the right term to use.
1: But you no, know, but, but it's care. a matter its a matter of oversight, isn't it?
0: It is. its We just need additional checks and balances within the system, whether it's related to consultants, whether it's related to gapping or other financial issues that the city's dealing with. It's never a bad thing to have your finance staff more involved with the day-to-day operations of some of the operating departments. And I know that might sometimes cause some friction between departments, but I think what it does at the end of the day is it avoids situations like the one we're dealing with today where we have an audit report that has, you know, Twenty to twenty plus recommendations in it that that seek to solve a problem involving tens of millions of dollars. And, and if Mr. Zagarek and his staff were more involved in the process related to consultants and other matters, I, I think it'd be we, the city would be better
1: off for it. Now we know, and, and maybe we should remind our listeners that the, the management team uh, meets uh, under the you know the auspices of, of Chris Murray, the city manager. They meet on a pretty regular basis, don't they?
0: They do. And, and I, I know that when, you know, almost as soon as this report was hot off the press, uh, Chris Murray and uh, Mike Zagarek and, and our senior management team were, were talking about ways and means in which to immediately improve the situation. So I, I think, you know, senior management team and council are on the same page related to this issue. Again, lots of questions right now because there's so much information in that report. And I'm hoping that this morning's meeting will be able to get through some, uh, you know, some, some of the the high-level numbers that are in there, $30 million at the wastewater treatment plant, um, unbudgeted expenditures, I mean, those are just the basics when it comes to, to, to finances and budgeting. And I, I'm i hoping that the auditor will be able to clearly explain, you know, what, what departments we're talking about because in some instances, you know, he's referenced uh, files and projects without naming them. And so we don't know whether this is in one or two divisions, whether this is uh, corporation-wide. You know, so I think the more information we have today and beyond, Bill, will certainly help us get to a point where we're more comfortable with uh, how we deal with consultants, how they're hired, how they're expensed, and whether or not we need them in the first place. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Family members of five Hamiltonians who were killed by police will finally be able to see the SIU reports uh, into the deaths of their loved ones by the end of this year. This is the result of a report that was issued late last week. Susan Claremont, the award-winning uh, crime journalist and uh, columnist for the Hamilton Spectator, joins us. She wrote about it this morning, and it's in today's spec. And always a pleasure to have Susan Claremont on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Good morning, Susan. How are you doing today?
2: Hey, I'm good, Bill. How are you?
1: I'm fine. Listen, you no, know, in the cycle of news that we were inundated with last uh, week... Uh, with the Trump thing, and the and the missiles, and et cetera, and even the Vimeo. This kind of got lost in the shuffle, but this is a pretty important report.
2: Yeah, this is, uh, as we say in the news business, this story has legs. Yeah. We're going to be seeing this story and uh, uh, repercussions of it for a long time yet to come. Uh, this is a very uh, big, very game-changing review that was released last week.
1: What was the motivation for actually getting this done? Because the, the questions that you have raised in, in many of the columns you've written over the last number of years uh, about these and other incidents like this, Susan, uh, have gone unanswered largely. Why all of a sudden is uh, it, did they decide to do something about this and issue this report,
2: yeah, the, the um, Justice Michael Tullock was tapped to to review policing in Ontario, um, in part because of the Black Lives Matter move, matters movement. Um, he, uh, you know, it, it sort of stems from um, uh, police. Uh, incidents of of injuring or even killing um citizens and names of police officers not being released um that was protested uh in toronto at length last year and that's what led to this review
1: Which uh, I guess, I mean, obviously the tie into Black Lives Matter was obviously because of the publicity that was going on like that, but you referenced in your piece today, Susan, uh, these Hamilton families that have been clamoring for answers for quite some time in many cases.
2: That's right. So the way it's always been done is that the province's special investigations unit, um, which investigates any time there is a a death, a serious injury, or an allegation of sexual assault involving police, Um, they, they investigate, they write a report that is never released publicly, not even to the, the victims or the victims' families. So these secret reports have never been seen by, by anybody except the Attorney General and the SIU Director in the past. Uh, what this new review by Justice tollick recommends is that those um, those reports be made public, even retroactively, uh, and that the the reports from 2005 on need to be released by the end of this year and that's why five Hamilton families whose loved ones have been killed by Hamilton police since 2005 will finally get some answers to their questions.
1: The frustration and 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 maybe one of the major problems obviously with the previous process uh, Susan was was lack of transparency. Uh, in other words it's one well good for them to say that you know, while the report is is uh, in front of the AG's hands right now uh there's there's no blame being apportioned here the family's still asking, well, what happened? Why? What What? What was the account? I mean, there was so much information that was not forthcoming right now, it had to be terrible for those families.
2: Exactly. Uh, they were told, you know, in each of these five cases, that police did nothing wrong, that they were justified in, uh, in the fatal shooting. And the families were asked to just trust that, uh, without being given any explanation as to why the SIU came to that conclusion. So, You know, they'll now be able to to, uh, find out what was involved with the investigation and the reasons for the final outcome.
1: There's uh, been some changes and some recommendations, actually, uh, from uh, Justice uh, Tulloch too, about the process, about how long these investigations should take.
2: Right. So uh, the SIU investigations are notorious for being long. Uh, We're talking the better part of the year to sometimes more than a year uh, with families waiting with also you know i should say the the subject police officer waiting you know uh, officers who shoot someone in the line of duty are uh, you know they're affected by this as well um you know it, it often means that they're taken off the, the road and and put on a desk job and they're awaiting the SIU results also so tullock's review uh, also recommends timelines uh, i believe it's 6 months for uh for the investigations to be wrapped up. And if it can't be done in six months, there needs to be some reporting to the family at the six-month uh, time frame and then every, uh, I believe, 60 days after that.
1: Is, is this investigation a quasi-judicial re- investigation, in which case they, they they try to justify, well, we can't release the information, or is is this just going to be a more transparent process now? In other words, when they do those updates to the family, can they actually give them details of what they've ascertained so far?
2: I don't know. I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. The way it works right now, and, uh, you know, there's a family member uh, in my story today, um, the sister of, <clears throat> excuse me, the sister of Tony Divers, who is killed by police six months ago and she says that she knows absolutely nothing about where the SIU is at in their investigation. She has no clue what's going on, uh, how far along they are, how how much longer she has to wait. So I don't know. Um, I would certainly hope that uh, when these recommendations are implemented and, and you know, Also, this is non-binding. We don't know for sure whether all of the recommendations will be implemented, although although it appears that the timeline recommendations will be. Uh, I certainly hope that transparency is is at the heart of this and that in the spirit of of these recommendations that the SIU is more forthcoming to the families.
1: Is everything that's In the report going to be available to the public and to the families or are we going to see redacted portions of this as as we have with some other documents in the past not necessarily to do with the SIU but it's been somewhat frustrating for you as a journalist obviously Susan to finally get your hands after freedom of information requests on a document and find out that half of it's blocked out
2: right and uh, yes Uh, Pollock has suggested that the name of the police officer involved in a fatal shooting should not be included in the report and you know that just makes no sense frankly because one of the other recommendations from tulloch is that there be a mandatory coroner's inquest every time a police officer shoots and kills somebody and of course uh we know that uh, coroner's inquests are public uh inquests they're public hearings so you know, you can withhold the name of the officer in the report, but it's going to be made public at the inquest anyways. And if criminal charges are laid, it will be made public then. So eventually, in every case, the officer's name would be made public. So why not just release it in the first place? Again, in the, in the spirit of openness and transparency and for gosh sakes, for, for the family, you know, um, if, if an officer's done nothing wrong, if the SIU has, has cleared them, if it was um, a shooting that happened under um, uh, reasonable circumstances, then what is there to hide?
1: Where do you think that's coming from? Is there being a pushback right now from police on this?
2: I'm sure there is. Uh, you know, the report refers to um, the reputations of the police officers, uh, but... You know, if if we're, the the whole point of this review was to address the fact that there is a lack of public trust in our police services in Ontario, that that's a real issue and a real crisis and police can't do their jobs uh, properly if there is no public buy-in to the work that they do. So, uh, you know, with that in mind, if that's, really what this review is about then why aren't we releasing names?
1: Well and therein lies that lack of trust and how many times have we heard that Susan in, in other incidents uh, not even necessarily related to deaths in in situations but confrontations between citizens and police And and oftentimes we hear that cited well we don't have any any faith in police we don't know what's going on and if we do issue a complaint it's all done behind closed doors for the most part, and we don't know anything about this. And that's not to suggest that there is collusion with police, but I'm saying the perception of it is there, and that really erodes any, any trust between community and policing when that happens. You'd, you'd think that police would be, be embracing this idea of trying to get as transparent as you could about this process.
2: Yes, I I would hope so. Um, you know, and I, I agree with you. I, I'm i also not saying that, um, uh you know, the police can't be trusted, but there is that perception out there, and it needs to be addressed. And, you know, uh, we have become accustomed to police being a very uh, closed, um, uh, secretive uh, body, and even the complaints process against police is convoluted and and, um, difficult for members of the public to, to navigate. So we need to, as this review suggests, we need to make all of this more open, more transparent, and um, police need to win back some of that trust from the public.
1: I, I mean, I can understand, and, and I'm sure Justice Talke, as you mentioned, talks about this in, in the report, about about you know the reputations of police, etc. And I, I get that, but you have to weigh that against transparency and, and that, that level of trust that goes on. Uh, and I, I maybe, I don't know, we we try to get a hold of police. We'll hopefully do that in a future program uh, to try to get some reaction from the police association on this. But I, I don't know if they're concerned about civil action on this, if there's something being named. I mean, even if there's no criminal activity that goes on, but but for the sake of closure, and I know you talked to a number of the family members uh, of, of uh, these victims uh, for this piece that you, uh, was published today, Susan, and, and to a... a, a each and every one of them, they seem to have that consistent desire. That, Listen, for the sake of closure, we need to know what's in this report and what's going forward.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, at the end of the day, we may find out, the public may read these reports and, and see that police were absolutely justified in, um, in each of these fatal shootings. That, that may be the outcome of this. But we need to see that. We, we need to see how we get to that point. Um, and, you know, the families have, some of them have been waiting, you know, 10 years and more for, for answers to, to understand what actually happened in those moments surrounding the death of their loved one. And uh, hopefully by the end of, of this year, they will finally get some of those answers.
1: Now, Justice Tullock also recommends right now that the SIU track things like race, ethnicity, indigenous status, uh, and mental health issue of the victims as well. Uh, I was under the impression, or at least hopeful, I guess, that this was already being done, but the fact that he's recommending it tells me it's probably not always something that's being, uh, I guess, calculated as they go through these investigations, which raises a broader question, who do they talk to and what are they looking for when they begin, begin an investigation like this?
2: well when uh you mean when the SIU begins yeah, investigating yeah. Yeah so the SIU, uh, of course you know uh wants to talk to the subject officer that's the term they use for the, for the officer who's um who's the one who fired the fatal shot or or caused the injury allegedly or uh, is the subject of the the um, sexual assault allegations but they're also going to want to talk to um any witnesses to the incident possibly family members of the uh of the victim um, but one thing I've learned, um, you know, in recent years is, is that we haven't done a very good job at all in Ontario, and in fact, all of Canada, of tracking things like um, uh, mental health status or uh, race when it comes to incidents involving police officers. We saw that come up um, in the issue of carding, right? Um, it, it's... I wrote a column some time ago about how it's difficult, well, in fact, impossible, really, to know whether carding, which is a very controversial subject, is effective or not because we haven't really tracked um, carding and the, the arrests that come out of it. There, we don't have a lot of academic studies in Canada about policing uh, where it concerns uh, race, uh, and um, mental health issues.
1: Well, and I know that uh, the other side of that coin and the police are, are I think, justifiably proud of, of the work they've done with St. Joseph's Healthcare and with the COAST program and things of that nature. But uh, this is this is a different situation. I mean, this is uh, an SIU investigation about a confrontation between police and a citizen, and and I guess the overriding question a lot of the family members are asking these days, and hopefully are going to get answers because of this report, is is how are the officers on the scene able to ascertain the mental state and condition of the individual that they're they're dealing with in that situation? You know, what's the criterion? Because those are those are split second decisions that are being made, and and that I think what, if they follow through on this, Susan, that's probably going to open up a much broader discussion about that.
2: Absolutely, it's an incredibly complicated issue, and and you're right. Officers only know you know a, a snapshot of, of information in those few moments when they're when they're dealing with someone who could be um, who could be violent and, and who who could be dangerous. Um, we know that a large number of the uh, people who have been shot and killed by police do have mental health issues. What police know in that very moment, um, you know, maybe the SIU reports will shed some light on that. Um, you know, I, I, being a police officer in that situation is an incredibly difficult job. They don't have all the information, and it's easy for, uh, for us to armchair quarterback. But, you know, sometimes that's all we have at the end of the day is the ability to go back and, and review, and that's what the, the role of the SIU is. So, you know, if we if we look at enough of those situations, and if we examine it, and if we open that up for public discussion, you know, ultimately, I would hope that um, that we could uh, have fewer. Uh, fatal police shootings that we would find better ways to deal with those situations.
1: Well, because those are some of the questions that were asked and answered. And you know, I think you and I had the discussion after the the incidents uh, with uh, with Steve Message of course up on the mountain. Uh, and and you have to be careful as as a as a reader of the pieces that you write and the sections that we do here on the program. Because we'll give information about you know what perhaps happened to it, to Steve, that t- particular morning, or what happened to Tony Divers an hour and a half or so before uh, that confrontation on James Street uh, six months ago. But you don't know whether the officers in hand knew that. Uh, in other words, you're piecing that together from information that, that you were able to, to obtain after the fact. How much information did they have? That's the sort of vital information I think that's going to be included in these reports that that previously, of course, the families w- w- were not allowed to see. That it just it didn't seem to make any sense. How can you have closure when you are yourself are not even aware of the of the events that happened and the and the way in which they occurred, happened and and the effect that it had on people?
2: That's exactly right. I mean, you know, uh, Tony Divers, who was killed six months ago, his case, his the investigation into his death by the S I U is still ongoing, and his sister says that it's absolute hell that she waits every single day for a phone call from the SIU, uh, hoping for, for answers, hoping for um, I, I'm not a big fan of the word closure because I don't think families ever get closure, but but w- waiting for for some kind of insight into what happened to her brother. Uh, and, you know, she's been waiting six months. We have other families who've waited 10, 12 years.
0: You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
1: Foreign ministers from the G7 countries are meeting today to try to get some clarity on uh, U.S. President Donald Trump's administration and uh, their policy towards the Middle East, their policy towards Syria, their policy towards Russia, because they're getting mixed messages. We all are getting mixed messages. That and, of course, about the events of late last week uh, with the... the gas attack and the subsequent uh, airstrike against the uh, the airfield in Syria. Joining us to talk about all of this is George Breckenridge, retired political science professor from McMaster University. George, good to have you back on the program. How are you today?
3: You know, I'm fine, thanks, Bill. Yeah.
1: This is uh, this has been quite a week, obviously. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the mixed messages first of all. Yeah. Uh, as late as the weekend, of course, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson. Uh, says that uh, as far as they're concerned right now, defeating ISIS and defeating uh, the uh, terrorists is the only element that they're really concerned about over there. At the same time, almost, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Nikki Haley was saying that regime change in Syria was a priority for the Trump administration. It's no wonder these guys are confused.
3: No, that's right. I mean, they've been, the whole thing has been very strange. I mean, I think basically they probably did the right thing symbolically. I mean, it didn't, it didn't create an awful lot of damage, but symbolically, it, it, you know, it, it responds to the horrible sarin gas attack. Um, but the messages were certainly scrambled. And um, Nikki Haley, who's obviously a rising star in the Republican Party, um, has been very outspoken and has said that, you know, nobody's stopping her from being outspoken against the Russians. I mean, she was very direct against the Russians, um, which doesn't seem to fit with the rest of them. Uh, Tillerson has been more, even he's been getting tougher as well. I mean, Tillerson Tillerson had sort of disappeared. People thought, you know, he was being completely sidelined. But he, he suddenly kind of emerged in this situation. And, of course, he's going to, to Moscow himself in a day or so. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the, the thing that was strange about the about the attack was it, it was such a head spinning kind of one eighty, you know, because right up till the day before the the, the attack, they were saying, you know, this, uh, Assad's uh, fate is up to the Syrians, and Trump had always said, I mean, way back to not two thousand thirteen when Obama was thinking about. You know, about responding, Um, you know, stay out of Syria, you know, America first, stay out of Syria, we don't want to get involved in that situation. And then all of a sudden, you know, once he saw the pictures, um, apparently, that's what people tell us, once he saw the photos of these little kids, um, all of a sudden, America's completely back, the policy's completely changed. So it's kind of worrying in a way that you know, it seems like this was an impulsive, you know, fit with his, what we know about his temperament, an impulsive emotional response to something rather than something that was really thought through and planned. Now, of course, nowadays, now that they've done it, the question is well, okay, now they are involved in Syria. What are they going to do? You know, they're back with the dilemma that. that uh, Obama faced in 2013.
1: Well, and those are the questions that I, I guess not just the the G7 foreign ministers, but everybody is asking these days. Uh, and and the other one goes to intent. I mean, the, the, you know, the sarin gas attack was was terrible, I mean, the, oh, and the yeah. pictures were horrific, and yeah. and, and and clearly, the, you know, the, you were looking for some sort of a response to that. Yeah. I but mean. the concern now, though, George, and I'm sure you've heard this as well, because it seemed to be the the thing to be talked about during the Sunday morning news shows uh, this weekend. Yeah. Was uh, how orchestrated was the attack on the airfield? I mean, the Washington Post editorial cartoon uh, this morning has a, a picture of Putin and Assad having tea together. And Putin's picking up the phone and then says it's, uh, it's Trump. He says, they're going to bomb one of your airfields. What time is convenient for you? <laughs> now, now that, that's overstating it, obviously, for the sake of satire. But there is a lot of speculation that, that there was connections between Russia and, 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 and of course, the, the, the White House, and subsequently between Russia and, and Assad, to basically say, get your Russians out of there, get your airfield out yeah, of there, yeah. uh, and, and basically, we're just going to do this for show.
3: Well, I mean, the 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 difference between this situation and 2013, when when uh, Obama was pressing was pressed to respond to the the earlier attacks in Aleppo, is that the Russians are much more involved, and so and the Russians are heavily involved in Syria. And so the fear on the part of the Americans, obviously, was, that, well, they didn't want to hit, you know, to kill any Russians. That would simply um, up the stakes and complicate things in a way that they weren't anticipating. And so they apparently gave the Russians some kind of notice. That's true. So it was really, in many ways, it didn't do all that much damage, as far as one can see, but it was it was this important symbolic strike uh, to respond to the, to the gas attack, but also it Inevitably meant that people are saying, "Well, America is now in," you know, "is now in in Syria." They now have, you know, responded in Syria in a way that that uh, Obama avoided doing, rightly or wrongly. And uh, so, so the question is, okay, what are you going to do now? You know, so the, the the sense of this was an impulsive move. Now he obviously got the the good thing about it about what happened is that it does look as if finally his kind of foreign policy defense team is actually working. You know, people respect the people he's appointed, like General Mattis and General McMaster and Nicky Haley and things like that. But they weren't seeming to, or and they weren't seeming to have much impact up till now. And clearly, they were the ones who, so you know, gave him the options and, and helped him and advised him and that sort of thing. But nevertheless, it's the president who makes the final decision on these things. And it seemed like a very impulsive you know, an overnight conversion, kind of, kind of, instant conversion, kind of response, and that is is rather worrying.
1: Well, and and again, you have to wonder about you know where the policy is, and who's making the policy, and who's yeah. who's getting the memos on this. Uh, you know, Tillerson's quoted this morning uh, in, in the morning news runs as uh, suggesting that Russia should rethink their position on Syria. Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, first of all, that's totally contradictory to what he just said last week and the week before yeah, that.
3: Indeed, indeed.
1: And second of all, it's a pretty benign message, isn't it, really, George, to simply say, well, we think you should rethink that. As if Putin's going to say, oh, OK, if you think so, uh, we, then we'll back off. That's not going to happen. And they know it's not going to happen.
3: Well, the other thing about the, by the whole situation is it's very embarrassing for the Russians because I mean, what happened when Obama pulled back was he pulled back in order to get an agreement with the Russians that they would supervise the taking out of all the uh, all these kind of dangerous uh, weapons, and obviously that didn't that didn't happen. So as they were saying, the Russians were either incompetent or they've been played for fools by the, by the Syrians, and so it's embarrassing for Putin. There's no question about that. And um, so he's, you know, he's put them back on their back foot, I think. And so it gives the um, the Trump the Trump administration an opport an opening, you know, to 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 deal with the Russians in a different kind of way, as well as trying to live down what's been what's been uh, plaguing them ever since he was inaugurated. They're they're much too close to the Russians. There's some kind of, you know, some kind of sinister connection with the Russians or the Russian oligarchs. So it's 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 shifted the balance between the two countries, um, at least temporarily. But then the question is again, you know, what's the follow up? What what happens next?
1: Well, does this ramp up or or does this reignite the Cold War? I I mean, clearly, you know, they they tried to create this idea, and I guess, you know, but obviously that this, as you mentioned, this affiliation almost between Trump and Putin, Uh, the events of the last four days would indicate that no, no, Trump's not a big fan and he's trying to draw a line in the stand here. But they seem to be shadowboxing on this, and you know both sides yeah. are issuing all the right communiques now, saying, right. you know that, uh, that this is different now, and and that you know if if the U.S. does this again, but you kind of wonder if this is just a one-off, and they figure, okay, you did something, we did something in retaliation. Now let's just move on from here and pretend it never happened.
3: Well, but I, th- I think because the because this embarrasses the Russians. And, and sort of knocks them back a little bit. It, it gives, the, it makes the potential for American-Russian relations to really get a different kind of start. I think. I mean, the Trump administration was completely handicapped, you know, snaggled up in this questions about their relations with Russia, and put, and you know Putin, you know, involving you know, interference in the American election. I think it was mainly he didn't want Hillary more than he wanted Trump but but uh, so i think this puts by by brushing the russians back a little bit by by what the syrians have done um i think it it you would it seems to me it puts it the relations between the possibility of relations between uh russia and the united states on a on a more healthy footing if you like you know what i mean you know it gives the americans a little it, it, it moves them into a much more kind of um a stronger posture in talking to him. Now, Putin apparently has said that he's not going to talk to Tillerson. <laughs> he wouldn't automatically meet with the president anyway, but he's apparently said he's not going to talk to Tillerson, leave it to the to Lavrov, the foreign secretary. But uh, I, I think it, it, it maybe puts the, the potential for uh, discussion and negotiations between, not only on Syria, but possibly on other things, between the United States and Russia on a, on a better footing in many ways.
1: But what does, what does this do actually in Syria now that the U.S. has yeah. retaliated like this? Some are suggesting this is actually going to win bold Assad because he's going to figure you know, now I can play the U.S. monster, you know, aggressive uh, yeah. you know policies again yeah. uh, to, to stir up support for, for him on the home front. But is it going to change the dynamic? I mean, going all the way back to the Obama administration, administration, George, yeah. the, the contentious point between Obama and Putin to do with Syria was Assad. Yeah. Uh, that Russia was not going to back down; he was going to support uh, yeah. Assad. Yeah. Uh, Obama wanted him out. Uh, have, as of late four days ago, Trump was saying, "I don't want to." I'm washing my hands of this. Now, right. all of a sudden, he's changed his mind on this. That's that's not going to make the Russians back off,
3: is it? No, no. The Russians have have you know have really staked a lot on on the intervention. In, in Syria, and um, to to be pushed out or to be seen to be kind of losing their footing there would be enormously embarrassing for Putin. And Putin's reputation at home depends very much on all these external things that he's got going on. You know, the economy's in bad shape, et etc. et cetera. There's a lot of corruption which is being exposed. And so his press, you know, his position really continues to depend on rallying the country against the Americans and against all these other foes. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the trouble with Syria all along has been, I mean, why why Obama hesitated was because it looked like if you got further in, you just get sucked into what is an, an insoluble situation. There's really no clear solution to that, because if it was simply um, Assad versus, you know, a bunch of good guys – then you knew you would know what side you were on, but it's much more complicated than that. There are really very few clearly good guys in the situation. It's almost impossible to imagine Syria being put back together under one government, uh, given the awful slaughter and the exodus of the population. I mean, it's, it's just been a, just a total disaster. And it's, very, it's, it's always been very hard to see what the solution was. But clearly, with the Russians in there, the Iranians are in there with their see, Shiite allies in in Syria. Um, the only possible way to stabilize the situation and stop the slaughter, and uh, you know, bring a little normalcy at least to part to, to different parts of the country is through political negotiations. And maybe this will help. You know, maybe this by putting the, the Russians a little bit more on notice that the Americans are not giving up entirely on the situation, um, it may, you would hope it would lead to more realistic neg- negotiations. Because clearly you, the, the Americans would have to deal with both the Russians and the Iranians, who are heavily, the Iranians particularly, are very heavily involved in Syria. Yeah, And. Uh, yeah, we don't I'll, talk much
1: about the Iranian influence no, here, do no. we? But, but it's certainly there.
3: Oh yeah, they're, they're very much there. They're much more heavily engaged than the Russians are. And they've staked an awful lot on that. And, um, and, of course, they have an election coming up as well, which always complicates things. Um, so the only way out is, to, and, and, of course, Turkey's a factor in the situation as well, in, in, you know because they're worried about the Kurds. And uh, so you, the only way out of the situation, there's no military victory possible in that situation. It's hard to to imagine how Assad could continue to be for very long, could continue to be president of, pretend to be president of all of Syria. I mean, that, that's just gone. But getting him out of there or giving him, you know, notice on when to get out, presumably is part of a larger negotiation. And these negotiations have been tried several times, and they've always failed so far. Maybe this will open a new chapter.
1: Well, it's going to be interesting to see how Iran responds to this, and, yeah. and certainly how the Russians do too. But I guess one of the concerns, one of the fears here, George, is is this a game of political checkers that goes on uh, when world leaders tried to do these negotiations yeah. in other words I'll turn my back while you do that but you got to give me something over here in this part of the world and yeah. and, uh. and and I mean you know things like Crimea are coming up right now in Ukraine yeah, yeah, uh, because yeah, the Russians yeah. obviously have a presence there and and the question I guess with the, 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 the a lot of people are asking especially in those regions is okay if if we're a part of those conversations and, and you're talking about us what what deals are you guys making back here yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, in other words uh, you know, does Putin throw uh, Assad under the bus, but, and and you know, it, and as a result, he gets uh, a little more leeway over in Ukraine. I, I you know the I know the Ukrainians yeah. would be pretty upset if that were part of the bargaining process, oh, but you indeed, don't know indeed. if it, no, if you're no, not at know. the table, you don't know, do you?
3: No, that's right, that's right. No, the potential of a you know a grand bargain involving Ukraine and and other, other stuff like that, where the Russians have been the aggressors. Um, it's hard to hard to imagine that you know you can reach it. The 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 Americans can't afford to, or the West generally is not going to give any ground in principle, at least on Crimea. Although I suspect Crimea is in fact gone, you know, as part of Russia. But they can't they can't sort of condone that. And uh, you know you what what the goal would presumably be to stabilize the eastern part of Ukraine in some kind of way. But whether that would be part of a larger negotiation or whether they could, would simply concentrate on on trying to stabilize Syria, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. But the, the political solution is the. But of course, political solutions very often work better when they're backed up by force. You know, that, that's one of the sad realities in the situation. If you're in a strong military position, uh, you're more able to, you know, to give on the negotiating field. So the, so the Americans dealing with themselves back in, which is what they've done, whether they follow it up or not, um, is, uh, you know, is, is uh, they need to strengthen their, their negotiating position.
0: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.